1977, Brian. Don't correct me. Ever. Don't fucking correct me. You didn't. You corrected yourself. I felt you guys pushing me constantly and psychically. Uh, I can't tell you how moved I am at, at, at the response we get here at the Bellhouse in Brooklyn every single time. Uh, first of all, it's stunning uh, that people would attend this. Uh, the last time we were here was uh, during the Kentucky Derby, which uh, I've officially renamed uh, uh, the Douchebag Preakness here in Brooklyn. Uh, I had no idea that the Kentucky Derby was actually a popular sporting event. I always thought it was for older alcoholic types and uh, degenerate betters and people who like to wear pink. Uh, or dudes who like to wear giant white hats, they want to go for that planter thing and shit. Uh, you know, they want to do the Michael Fassbender in 12 Years a Slave look. That's uh, so hip and says now. Uh, but then I found out everybody likes the derby, and then I realized why. In, my, in, the, in the sadness of my heart, I was looking at it as a political event of something that happened. Because, of course, as you know, uh, black jockeys won, what, 15 of the first 20 derbies? And then they didn't have black jockeys anymore for about a hundred and something years. <laughs> That's the tradition of the Kentucky Derby that I tip my fucking uh, uh, cap made of gems and crows to. And but the point is, I now I realize that it's been rehabilitated, and that we're now that we're in the new millenniums. Uh, it's no longer perceived that way. It's perceived as much like St. Patrick's Day, a made-up thing where you get to drink, and that's it, really. From about eight in the morning, because people were, you walk around New York, and people were wearing like seersucker suits and shit. Everyone's dressed like Tom Wolf going to a fucking PM conference or whatever. And yeah, it was kooky. It was like the cast of Faulkner's Mosquitoes walks out of a hotel, and you're like, who has parasols? You know? No, I say it's going to be a marvelous day at the races. I hope that tall Ronald speaks to me today. Uh, I heard he has a firm hand with the whip and he knows how to put a woman in her place. But it's not, it's just a booze fest. And when I say St. Patrick's is a made-up holiday, I don't mean Ireland is a made-up country. I mean, you can go to Ireland and they'll celebrate it kind of nominally like, oh, you're from America, we'll get for you. That's grand. That's grand that you really even give a shit about that so much. Because as I pointed out on the show, Irish people, uh, uh, for all their amazing qualities, you know, the misogyny and the racism, besides those, you know, their amazing ability to be the most literate and musical people in the world and to find joy in almost everything, and especially the dire poverty that's been waged on them by the British and their own government over the last hundred or so years. Uh, well, let's go back 500 or so years. And, uh, the, uh, the thing the Irish can do is give you the worst news in the world while twinkling. They twinkle more than Jay. Yes. It's like meeting J.R.R. Tolkien at the punch bowl, you know what I mean? They, People, you'll be like, you come downstairs and you're like, there's no hot water in the There's no hot water. Oh, Jesus, Mary, tell us about wouldn't it be grand if there was hot water? Maybe it's an hour. I hope you didn't drink the tea this morning. It turns out that the water supplies are the pies. And they get the yeah, maybe you'll live, eh? You'll be a lucky when you have a good This food's cold. Aye, well, the island's not, you know, we didn't know it was hot food. <laughs> it's a time with my uncle. Oh, and the British came and oh. <laughs> uh, so I've received so many gifts here, and I, I really can't begin to begin to pretend to begin to begin. This doesn't even, uh, the table can't hold how many gifts I got. I feel like I got married in Greece. Uh, <laughs> like, I've got a purse backstage stuffed with money. Uh, thank you. If I lose a little, my own. Uh, right? The Godfather? Nobody? Okay, whatever. Um, the cheese stands alone! The cheese stands alone! 
I have dozens of books that I've received from lots of people here. Uh, our friend from Philadelphia. Tell me your name again. Bill. Bill. From Philadelphia. Uh, I see him in Philly. I see him here. You'd think I'd remember that his name's Phil from Philadelphia. Yeah, no, it's Bill. I know what your name is. Can I do humor while you're here, Bill? I'm like David Copperfield. A lot of this is misdirection and a fake tan. I saw a billboard or like a movie video billboard display taxi fucking thing for illusionists and it was one after the next and it was Chris Freakmind what's that fucking guy and, uh, and then the other dude and then there was another guy and he had a long coat on like everybody looks like they just uh, got thrown out of the bus and truck company of the Matrix or whatever and, they, and they've all got shades on and, 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 uh, and one dude is flipping cards at the camera like and it was just cards and you're like that blows I don't care how stupid you are. What kind of entertainment is having someone fucking flip cards in slow motion at you? Like, at least Chris Freak shows, uh, you know, is impaled on a giant celery stalk, and there's a fucking Komodo dragon attached to his, you know, man bag or whatever. It's, it's more exciting, you know. Uh, just going like fucking illusion. I'm like, no, no, no. There's video. There's lighting and shit. I know what you're doing. Magician. Are you shitting on something else we love? Yes. <laughs> I'm not saying you shouldn't enjoy magic. It's just that if, you know, if you're over five and you're not at a birthday party, <laughs> you might want to reconsider other things like poetry readings and fucking songs and shit like that that grown-ups like. I'm going to throw a fucking five of diamonds. Wow. Can you imagine if he guesses your card? Is it a bend in the cosmic fabric? Or is it a cheap fucking ploy for a falcon to swoop down and take all the money out of your pocketbook? Tuesdays on the shit channel. Skadusion. It's like illusion, but we couldn't think of a better fucking name. I used to go to, I don't know why, I thought of, well, the other day I was telling somebody this. Uh, I used to go to freak shows when I was, uh, uh, you know, uh, a little kid. We would go to county fairs. My father took me to every county fair and, in the state of California. Really glad for that spirit of fun and to take a hayride and to get some cotton candy and to eat a popcorn ball. And then maybe later throw a, a hoop around a Pepsi bottle that's been elongated in a terrible lava accident. <laughs> and win a chimpanzee that's hanging on a hook. No. Uh, my father liked to gamble like no one's ever liked to fucking gamble. Jimmy the Greek didn't gamble as much as my dad did. And uh, so there was always horse races. So he would give me $20. Uh, mind you, I'm a nine-year-old child. He would give me $20. And about, now everyone's gone serious again. Like, shouldn't someone have called child services, friend? This was a long time ago, you guys. It's like a mink coat. The mink's already dead. Stop throwing paint on me. My dad would smoke Salem's and wear with the windows rolled up, and we listened to like the country music station because he, for some reason he liked country music, and uh, they would play the horse racing results and showing up. And uh, they, it would be like, love is a burning thing, and then we'd uh, uh, we'd go to the track, and then he'd give me like twenty bucks, and I'd fuck off to the fair. So I met every carny on my own as a child. And in those days, the only people with tattoos were sailors, uh, women of, uh, uh, of ill repute, and uh, women of sordid reputation. And uh, 
carnival workers, carnies, and they really did have love and hate tattooed on their hands and shit like that, and they'd be sitting there smoking a fucking Marlboro, right? Like, just bored, fuckless, sometimes throwing a knife into a board. <laughs> I know, it sounds like it's the 19th century. This is the fucking late 60s. They'd be like, what? And you'd walk up and be like, how much to play the pony game? <laughs> Uh, and then they, there's one called Spot the Spot, and it's a big red spot. And they hold the thing over it like this. They have like five rings in their hand that are circles. And if you can cover it like that, you win anything behind you, which is giant pandas. And, and I mean, not real giant pandas. That, <laughs> although that would be awesome. That's next, by the way. <laughs> Zoos, every zoo in the world has a giant panda now. And evidently, China has a, a giant panda fucking Brave New World Bokanovsky method breeding farm going on somewhere where they're cloning pandas by the billion so that every fucking zoo in the world can have one. Panda bears are the most ill-tempered, fucking inconsiderate, solo-running assholes of all the fucking Ursine kingdom. They eat, they have to eat an entire bamboo forest every day. Uh, they have to have stuff from Pottery Barn and little throw rugs all around them. They have to have a tire swing. You know how difficult in nature to grow a tire swing? They lay on the ground, they don't, they don't want to have sex with each other, as you've noticed over the years. Every zoo is like, well, zing, zing, and chang, chang, we finally commuted the big scooper today as they made the panda with two bags. Let's watch this black and white footage as we... Boo, Greg, boo. So... Every, everybody, uh, they would be giant pandas uh, uh, that you would win. But the, the trick was, if you sat there and did this all day and took methamphetamine, I didn't mention that. <laughs> but everyone at the fair that worked there was on methamphetamine. How could you tell, Greg? They were chain-smoking Marlboros, and they had eyeballs like fucking, like the, the, when you look at a map of a supernova, the outlying little specks that the fucking radion telescope picks up, that's what their eyes were like. Just... <laughs> I don't know if you've ever seen the last 20 minutes of 2001, but that's what their eyes are like. Just... Right? You could hear it when they spoke to you. And uh, I was polite. Excuse me, mister? Yeah, I had a little rucksack on a pole and a, and a, and a handkerchief in my back pocket and whatnot and a, a slingshot in the other pocket. No, I was a four foot tall child with glasses. So they took pity on me often. Uh, one time, the guy gives, my dad was with me, and he uh, gave the guy like a $20 bill. And the guy went, I'll get your change, hang on. And uh, he waited a minute or two, and he didn't give me my change. And my dad grabbed the fucking guy and threw him up against the fucking tent and put his fucking fist under his face and went, where's my fucking change? And the guy went, it's right here. And I was like, dad, that was a little harsh, wasn't it? And he's like, I got the change. And I'm like... You've taught me a lesson about how the world works, Dad, <laughs> that I shall never forget. And when I'm in front of audiences of devoted people who've traveled, some by bus from Boston here tonight, uh, I will remember uh, to always threaten them immediately <laughs> if things don't go my fucking way within 30 seconds. That was the lesson you taught me, Dad. Thanks for that short fuse. Uh, people give me all these books and whatnot, and uh, a Giants, thank you for my Giants fans, friends. Uh, uh, Bill, by the way, gave me uh, uh, the Wendy Davis book, which I thank you very much for. I, she's a courageous person. I, the campaign might have gone a little differently, but of course, as we've spoken of ever so briefly on the show, this last campaign was fucking wow. Uh, yeah, we're lucky that the Ukraine didn't invade us to install a democracy after this last fucking election. This midterm was 
Chai Caneris. And uh, William Davis didn't win, but he gave me the book anyway. And Elizabeth Warren book as well, William. Thank you very much for that. And uh, a John Waters book, which I couldn't be more excited about. And to give you the kind of idea of what kind of greedy guy William is, they're all autographed. And uh, I thank you for that very much. And uh, I autographed each one of them when he gave it to me. <laughs> Thank you very much for those. that. Was absolutely sensational. I've received loads of different books backstage. Uh, this one here, Hellraisers. Who gave me Hellraisers? Devin and Wesley. Oh, Devin and Wesley. Thank you. So I'm going to say stop. Stop. Uh, let me give you a description of this book. The Life in Inebriated Times of Richard Burton, Richard Harris, Peter O'Toole, and Oliver Reed. Wow. <laughs> All of us in this room right now, with whatever you've got in your glass, Oliver Reed drank more in the morning. <laughs> If anyone remembers Oliver Reed, he was an absolutely superb actor of brooding intensity. Uh, they are, uh, often actors have, they say like, the brooding and intense uh, Vin Diesel. <laughs> and you're like, <laughs> Oliver Reed was brooding and intense. When you watched him on screen, you still felt like there was physical danger. <laughs> like he might get your shit kicked. Like he could somehow come through the screen. And, and then he was often drunk in roles, and he had a big giant hairdo that came down too far, and often had facial hair and stuff. Uh, uh, anyone ever see Oliver, the, the, the delightful children's musical? Oliver Reed plays a psychopathic killer who tries to kill Oliver through the whole movie, and kills his girlfriend. And uh, it's a real lighthearted children's romp, and it's perfect. It's perfect at Christmas, it really is. When you see it when you're little, you're like, oh, this will be fine, and there's the opening number, and then there's Kent, city yourself, well in, and there's lots of lovable cockneys with scruffy noses and fucking striped scarves and shit and fingerless gloves. If you like fingerless gloves, next to the girls just want to Next to the girls just want to have fun video, Oliver is the field video. Uh, you will fucking groove on that shit. There's a lot of things, because some of them are, it's not like Mary Poppins, there's no chimney sweeping. They're pickpockets, and, uh, and then they have a Jewish leader of their gang, ah, because, oh, the 19th century was full of laughs, and, uh, what does he say? In this life, one thing counts, in the bank, large amounts, these amounts don't grow on trees, you've got to pick a pocket or two, boy, you've got to pick a pocket or two, boy, and then, and then the cockneys jump in, that is a you go on trees, and everyone's like, would you do a cockney accent when you sing that part? Um, no, I wouldn't. So I'm watching Oliver Reed on a talk show in England, and he's juiced beyond fucking measure. And uh, they ask him about playing Bill Sykes and Oliver. And, uh, and Nancy, his girlfriend in the, in the movie, says to him, you love me, don't you, Bill? And he goes, of course I'll do. Oh, there's a few, don't I? And Oliver Reed explains the role, and he goes, you know what it really was, was... Uh, do you love me, Bill? And he goes, oh, fuck you, don't I? <laughs> you know, this made my childhood retroactively worse than it was. It wasn't a hidden repressed memory that I have to deal with. It's a forward repressed memory. Now the next time I'm telling someone about my childhood, I have to remember the subtext of what I didn't know at the time. Because that's how fucking scary you are. But he also, my favorite role of him of all time is uh, Athos in um, uh, uh, The Three Musketeers and Four Musketeers from the 70s. He's absolutely fucking stunning in that. And uh, he's in a lot of great movies, The Trap and whatnot. There he is in Three Musketeers. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you for remembering. After his collapse on Major Dundee. <laughs> 
This is Richard Harris around here now. Richard Harris quit drinking, and, uh, but, uh, and he made a lot of brilliant movies at the end, uh, the, the name of which escapes me. He was nominated for the Oscar. It was an Irish picture. In any case, he's an Irish actor, and uh, he drank quite a lot, and he rolled with Burton and O'Toole. And uh, there's fantastic stories of uh, Peter O'Toole showing up at a Richard Harris play and uh, jumping out of the audience in the middle of the show and going, I'm Peter O'Toole and I'm dressed as a nun. Uh, which he was. And uh, completely noted. This is the kind of shit they pulled on each other. Uh, <laughs> Richard Harris says, uh, what is it in Major Dandia? I'd rather die, sleep, than live on the okay, What is it? Because it's Charlton Heston and Charlton Heston is Major Dandia. He's, guess what? A brutal psychopath with a gun. And... Uh, <laughs> And Richard Harris plays a southern gentleman officer. But I thought you said he was Irish. This is Hollywood. <laughs> um, Natalie Portman's not actually a princess from Amendola or whatever. <laughs> spoiler alerts. <laughs> After his thoughts on Major Denny, Richard Harris made a serious attempt to control his losing. Hang on. On doctor's orders, he cut out spirits and confined himself to beer and champagne. <laughs> wow. You know, my doctor's never said, Greg, you should really cut down. And, you know, just confine yourself to hash. <laughs> That's awesome. He was ready to perform and to enjoy the taste of alcohol sensibly. Without, hmm. Without constantly pushing himself over the edge and getting in trouble. I don't drink for kicks, he said. I drink when I'm happy and when I'm with friends. It's boredom and frustration, not drink that make me aggressive. But I do enjoy letting myself go once in a while and waking up in someone else's garden or in a police station. <laughs> I don't know if you have a life philosophy or a creed that you live by. You might have a maxim on your refrigerator that says, like, live every day to the fucking Gwyneth or whatever. I don't know. I don't know what your fucking, like, you know, words that you live under are. But I think I do enjoy letting myself go once in a while and waking up in someone else's garden or in a police station. It's really something everyone in this audience should consider. A lot of you want to write a book later, right? Well, write what you know is the name of that fucking story. And if you write a book about how you made a quilt and fucking had a little melting, smelting area here in the Gowanus neighborhood, and then you had to move to Connecticut to Bridgeport because everything got too expensive here, and oh, already I hate your book. If the opening sentence of the book is, the cop's boot crushed my molars ceaselessly, like a Nazi stamping on a pair of Jewish dice during a raid in a train. Greg, there's not enough blenders to contain the mixing of those metaphors. There's not a that big enough an Anheuser Bush or Anheuser Bush or however the fuck you say it. Fuck you. Uh, yeah, no. Your opening sentence needs to be: a body's hard to cut apart when you're drunk. Right? No one knows how the dead horse got in the sink. You know, draw me on to pleasures. As uh, was it Hamlet or Rosencrantz? Somebody said it. Who's running the Who the fuck are you? <laughs> After a couple of frothy comedies, O'Toole took the more testing role of Henry II in the literate historical drama of The Lion and the Winter, where him and Burton evidently drank the whole of England dry and supplies had to be called in from the continent. 
Spurred on by success in Camelot. Camelot is hard going. I'm sorry. I love Richard Harris, and he's a nice person. I don't know that he was a nice person. I, I don't even know why I said that. Why do people always say that, too, when you meet someone? Like, there'd be someone famous or whatever, like, oh, we met this guy the other day. Oh, no, who did you meet? Oh, we met, you know, Salvador Allende or whatever. And then, like, was he nice? Like, no, he didn't. Being nice isn't always the chief quality in people, and it's, it's not necessary. Um, some people deserve to be assholes. In my experience, the people who are assholes don't deserve it. And the people who are really nice should fucking have every reason to be an asshole. Uh, people who are wildly accomplished have been unbelievably kind to me. And people who are moderately talented have come at me like a fucking ton of horse manure. And you're like, barf. Uh, I enjoy your podcast, dear Mr. Cripps, thank you. I'm listening up to present, so I still have a year of podcast. Let's just... <laughs> Thank you for your card, by the way. I enjoy your podcast immensely, period. I am listening up to the present. Okay. So I still have a year of podcasts, sir, to listen through. A few questions. Well, really? How familiar are you? I haven't even read this yet, and all of a sudden we're on a question basis. I have a question for you. Who gave you this fucking pen? Uh, when will you release the book, My Dick Has Two Fists? Oh, I'm all in the fullness of time. The Brooklyn sunrise came up like a fucking guillotine slicing down on a French noble's head. I sat up in my bed, a pepperoni in a place that I had no idea how it got there. I was so hungover, the booze bottle laughed at me when I looked at it. When I poured myself a bowl of cereal, it lit a cigarette and spoke. Hey, fruit bucket, when are you gonna do anything with your life? Fuck you, I said through chipped teeth, because that was the night before someone had stomped on them. Like a Nazi stomping on cats. An irradiated dolphin perplexedly barked in the distance. I could tell what was coming through its blowhole was mocking by the pantonal optional chorus with blues that it chirped on every alternate squeak. My fist has two dicks, uh, is uh, gonna come out in a box set like Proust. <laughs> Why is a raven like a writing desk? Um, because riddles are as fun as Rebus's? <laughs> Why? <laughs> Why is a raven like a... Is this rhetorical? <laughs> There's a funny answer, right? I don't know it. Because what? Poe wrote on both. Because Poe wrote on both. Oh. <laughs> Number three, can someone... <laughs> it's always good to have a Poe reference in everything. When we used to watch the Teletubbies when we lived in England, get up in the morning and I'd burn a fat one and it was on around 10. And then in the beginning, those rabbits, those are oversized rabbits. They're like the biggest rabbits in the world and made the set small. That's what's awesome about the Teletubbies. Yeah, they were fucking with you before you even woke up. And they're giant French rabbits. Uh, they're all from the cast of the movie The Night of the Lepus, which uh, is a movie that 
is um, almost essential viewing, really. If you've ever wondered what would happen if uh, ra uh, rabbits were exposed to radiation and grew to enormous uh, fucking sizes and chased people down and ate their faces off, m the movie Night of the Leapers provides a lot of those answers. Um, it's an exploring and gripping uh, um, look at what happens when rabbits run amok. The problem with having rabbits, as I've discussed on the show before, I believe, is that they're not scary under any circumstances. Uh, someone could throw a rabbit at you and you'd be like, STOP IT! <laughs> No one goes like, oh my god! <laughs> like, I've had a Doberman pincher stick its fucking nozzle up my man crap. And that is fucking bad. <laughs> to say the least. I'm, under, I'm understating the case a little bit. If you've ever walked into someone's house who has a Doberman or a pit bull or one of those insane fucking dogs that are scary, and then they're, they're, they're first of all, they always talk like this. Oh, don't worry, it's okay. Secondly... <laughs> The next thing they always say, oh, you don't buy it unless you're scared. And you're like, ah! Oh! I'm scared! And then the dog puts its pizzle, its nozzle right in your thing, like, right in your taint, just like Matthew McConaughey, like, Wah. It's horrible. I like animals. I mean, you know, I ate a part of one. Uh, I had part of one earlier, and I thought it was good. <laughs> so we, when we got up, we would watch the Teletubbies, and they had the giant rods, right? And in the Night of the Lepus, uh, they slow them down and dub sounds onto them to make them frightening. So when they, when they do attack, finally, they, they, they're in slow motion running like this, and they dub in this... <laughs> like, no! Giant rabbits don't make a squeechy fucking bat noise or whatever. It's a 70s movie, and uh, it's, it's fairly... We should start. <laughs> it's one of the few movies where you'll see Dr. McCoy. Do DeForest Kelly is in the movie, uh, and it's quite good. He wears a little pantsuit with these like little fucking cowboy boots. Is, no one else notices these things when they watch movies? Really, Greg, you noticed what DeForest Kelly was wearing in the movie? The 70s hairdos rock you so hard that the rabbits can barely undo the damage. Uh, why is he raving like a riot against Pope? So we would watch the Teletubbies in the morning, and we'd burn one, and the French rabbits come on one, and they go, Tom, for Teletubbies, Tom, for Teletubbies, and they get up and they go, Tinky Wink, or Dipsy, what was it? D Dipsy, right? What? I can't remember, yeah. And then La La, and then we would always go, Pope. <laughs> So like, they'd be like, good morning, and they'd all run around or whatever, and Poe would be sitting in his desk with a half-spilled glass of laudanum on him. <laughs> We're gonna go outside and make a merry-go-round. I'm busy correcting this <laughs> I have some work to do. While I pondered, we can wear it once upon a That's not it. Edgar Allan Poe swanned around town and wore a cape and a giant hat and a fucking scarf and he carried a cane and shit like that. And uh, his friends called him the Raven because he got very famous from that poem and whatnot. And he adopted an actor-ish air. And uh, he was a devoted fan of slavery. <laughs> this is, does nothing to diminish his work uh, in both inventing, I think you could suffice to say, he invented 
uh, possibly science fiction and detective fiction. If he didn't invent it, he made a good fucking stab at it. Uh, and he's a genius of a writer, there's no question. And my favorite line, I think, is in Marilla. Uh, Shall I say then, dear reader, how much I wanted her dead? Um, but, uh, uh, yeah, it, it makes the Teletubbies funnier if you imagine Edgar Allan Poe as one of them each time. <laughs> kind of takes the edge off the sun and all that. By the way, speaking of the sun, I got up this morning here in New York, and the sun never shone today. Uh, who was it, the Walker Brothers? They did the theme song for today. The sun ain't gonna shine anymore. It's just gonna be fucking white over Brooklyn. Uh, it's been like white for like two days now with intermittent rats. And uh, <laughs> someone had opened up a couple bags of garbage in front of the crew where we're staying at, and I thought, that's just an invitation for later. <laughs> this is gonna be like a total convention later with like rats with like fezzes on and name tags and shit. <laughs> like getting drunk and whatever. We're doing like the German rats. Do, do, likes me in his. I don't know why they're visiting from Germany. It just seemed like it'd be good if German rats had come over and were on my block and like, oh, the open garbage bags. I told you it was always a buffet here in America. <laughs> there was a Matterhorn of garbage. Let's climb it. <laughs> That's what I love about New York, the Matterhorns of garbage. Uh, yes. Number three. Can someone please make a mixtape of all the times you ripped on Karl Lagerfeld, please? You're asking the wrong person, but yes, someone can. Uh, I like the bottle, but not the vodka. Will you drink it, autograph it, and give it back? Yes, I will. Here's the bottle. It's a Skull uh, uh, vodka. I don't know what brand it is, uh, but it's already been closed. My wife, Jennifer, will allow me to do this because she's here tonight. Um, uh, because uh, we were in London recently, and... Uh, come on! We were in London recently, and... Uh, <laughs> just, for those of you listening, I was just urging a friend... Candy colored clown, they call the Sandman. <laughs> Comes into my room most every night. So, uh, uh, I will autograph this for you, yes. Uh, and, and when we were in London, um, a, a young lady gave me a bottle of uh, Swedish grain, wheatgrass, wolfbane alcohol. <laughs> the kind that Maria Ostenskaya sprinkles on the doorways in the Dracula movies. And uh, who's Maria Ostenskaya? Fucking Google. And. The, uh, uh, it, was, it was brown, and when I tasted it, it tasted uh, as if um, the Czech army had rendered their underwear into jello. And then the jello, yes, and then that had been reduced uh, into a fine cream. It had a, a, a patina uh, that was uh, almost inescapably earthy, let's put it that way. And when I say earthy, I mean like another world earth. Uh, the, the, a world of earth that only exists under the ground where the beetles can no longer go because they're like, pee you, sir. Uh, and I drank a shitload of it. And my wife was like, you drank a bottle from a person who just gave it to you that you don't know from fucking Adam that didn't have a seal on it. And I'm like, was that wrong? So I poured a heaping talk for a kid in the front room. What a kid. He was, a, a, you know, nine, 12, whatever. Listen, I gave him 20 bucks and went, go ride the Tilted World. There's a dude with a gold tooth who wants to meet you, and I got the top of a hook of an arm, and part of his head is a ham sandwich. And later on, he'd like to beat you and spot the spot, and uh, have you barf up 10 of your $20, and then go back crying to your dad and have to watch the horse races for a while. And then I learned to handicap in any case. Um, if you want to watch the derby with me, I'll tell you we'll fucking win, because we can go through it, and I'll look at their past performances. 
But the point is this. Um, the, uh, really, you're not good? Well, no, I'm not. You know, it's like, it's good old reliable Nathan, 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 Nathan Dietrich. I got the horse right here. His name is Paul Revere. And my guy says, if the weather's clear, can do. And every time we're in Kamloops, uh, British Columbia, it's always, of course, Kamloops, Kamloops. This place is called Kamloops. There's shit kickers in Kamloops. 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 It's not Victoria. It's not Colonia. It's not Nanaimo, but there you are in Kamloops. It's funnier when you're with me. On a bus in Canada. In any case, uh, this has been government sealed as... Uh, who was it he said every time you break up Malcolm X? Every time you break open a bottle, remember you're breaking open a government seal. Uh, and then, of course, there was Gil Scott Heron when what he had to say about it. Uh, what's your name, my precious love? Jack. No. That was a distinctly a man's voice. Jen! The Scalusionist presents. The hermaphroditic voice act of the moon. One part's man, one part's woman. They're both in transition. It's Jen and Jen! Never mind how the cards throw your face. When her gonads and his fallopian cues intertwine, you're not gonna know whether to shit or wind your wristwatch. It's hermaphroditic voice throwing weak. Jen, is that J-E-N? Jen? G-E-N? Either of you can answer this one. Don't just yell random shit. I'll give it back to you. Thank you for uh, the bottle of vodka. I appreciate it. That was very thoughtful of you. I'm going to wander over here. I hope... Uh, if I just throw it into the crowd, someone will know. Just go on the human chain and pass that back to Jen and Jen. Thank you, Jen and Jen. Uh, this you may have noticed. Very kind of you, thank you. It's from a, a person named Blake Chamberlain. And uh, he, uh, I, I think this is a painting of me. Um, in this light, you'll find that... Sadly, it looks exactly like I do. There's purple swirls and blue models and lozenges and pink things on my cheeks and, and, and he's, uh, you know, sort of morbidly middle-aged and uh, uh, you can smell the self-pity and the bitterness flying off of the, the figure in the painting. It's an unbelievable likeness of me. Thank you very much for this. He's called it La Giconda. And uh, thank you for nobody getting that fucking joke. Thank you, Blake. That was very, very kind of you. I said, are you a professional artist? And I can't remember your response, but the answer wasn't an unequivocal yes. Uh, but clearly you should be. And uh, I don't know what this one on the back is here. Oh, Harriet Tubman. Wow, a fabulous rendering of Harriet Tubman. I'm so honored that you've thought to do Harriet Tubman and me in the same lifetime. <laughs> I lead the Proopter Ground Railroad uh, to Bay Parkway, <laughs> where a lot of us try to score some math from a dude named Pietro. Um, so that's the kind of heroism I uh, bring to the 
for. Thank you very much for that, Mr. Chamberlain. That was unbelievably awesome. Uh, we've had all these things here. And Jennifer received some gifts tonight to a calendar and a scarf, and she wishes on, uh, me on your, her behalf to it. Thank you for those gifts. That was very, very nice of you. A couple of quick things here, and then we'll start the show. Um, <laughs> my friend Brian Fielding is here tonight with his wife, Lynn, and his family. And uh, uh, Brian Fielding is the one who gave me my start in podcasting. Audible, who is, of course, a proud sponsor of this show, uh, and you should, of course, listen to all their books, one after the next. Uh, they have over 50,000 zillion titles. I'm doing an impromptu ad here. There's no ad this week, I don't think. Um, uh, you should li- not only should you uh, b- download an Audible book, you should listen to all of them at, uh, at the same time <laughs> and see how your retention is. Um, Brian was working for Audible, and we met in Aspen, Colorado, and uh, I did a show on Audible... Um, uh, for about five years, and uh, it was before anyone had fucking smartphones. It was from 2001 to 2005. So I was doing a podcast for fucking ever that nobody really heard. Uh, it was during the Bush administration. It was so funny. Here, let me do something for you. Cheney, what an asshole. Um, really? Iraq? What a fucking bunch of bullshit. And, uh, no, there was a 9-11 episode. It was a, and a 7-7 episode. I, I, was in, I was in London on that day in 2005. And, uh, so it, it was fun. And uh, I just wanted to say thank you uh, for the gifts you've given me here. Brian gave me a, uh, a lovely uh, uh, music and book by Paul Moulding, the Irish poet. Uh, and I appreciate that very much. Thank you for that, Brian. And uh, thank you for starting the podcasting thing way before the fucking party caught fire. Uh, yeah, but 2001 to 2005... Uh, are like saying, oh, I was in television. Really? When? 1936 to 1941? <laughs> you know, we did the Hindenburg, the World Series. It was pretty awesome. Who, who had sex? Nobody to speak of, but god damn it, we were good. No, you had to listen. On those days, I think we would say, you can download this on your MP3 player. <laughs> or if you know someone who has a crock pot, you can hook it up to your fax machine. <laughs> Who's got a dial-up stylus? <laughs> and I want to thank uh, uh, CBS this morning. Uh, I don't often thank uh, the Columbia Broadcasting System because even though I've worked for them over the years, uh, I've done Craig Ferguson's show many times, and, uh, and Craig Ferguson is a lovely individual. And, but I, I want to thank them because uh, I was asked to be on CBS this morning, this morning, and I've never been on a breakfast show on a network uh, before, and it was fucking the most fun I've ever had. They were so fun. <laughs> Uh, Anthony and Vanita, uh, we had a great time, and uh, uh, let me tell you something about uh, going on a network uh, show as opposed to anyone else's show. You go to do a podcast at your friend's house, and they're like, you want to get high? And you're like, yeah. And then they're like, you're like, do you have any water? And they're like, well, from the sink. And you're like, it's cool. And then, uh, and that's what the, you know, that's what the hospitality is like. Uh, at CBS, I was ushered into a room, and they were like, "Have anything you like?" And there was like, it was like, uh, what, what, I don't know if anyone's ever seen Scrooge with uh, Albert Finney when he meets the ghost of Christmas present, and there's like a groaning board, and there's turkeys and hams everywhere, and Father Christmas was sitting on top, and he was like, "I like life, life likes me, life and I mutually agree." Papa, I was like, "Wow!" And there was free bagels and whatnot. I felt so shitty stuffing my bag with them. The thing is. There was croissants and coffee, fresh fruit, fresh fruit, fresh fruit, fresh fruit. I know it's CBS, and and this is something else I'll say. Uh, I, I, you know, you do you do breakfast TV all around the country, right? Or, well, you don't, but I do because in my role as an effluent celebrity, I have several fucking duties that are in the effluent celebrity constitution, which I have right here. 
It was penned by Thomas Jefferson's cousin, Ken. Um, the, and all the Fs are, of course, Ss, for real. But. In the Athletic Celebrity uh, Constitution, it says that one of the things you must do is go on breakfast shows all around the country. So you're in, uh, like, Cleveland, Phoenix, whatnot, and you know you're on in Phoenix or Cleveland, and they're really nice people. Sometimes they'll go, about that who's lying? Do you guys really make that up? And you're like, it's been like a hundred years. No. No, we don't. There's a script. It's written on Drew's ass, and I, it's, in bra- it's in Braille, and I'm blind, so I read it with my tongue, okay? They didn't do that. They, they asked beautiful questions. And, and, and there's, but what I'm getting at is this. You go to a regular newsroom in any place in the country, and t- uh, show business has been stripped down to nothing. Literally, show business is stripped down to, like, a dude with a camera and someone with a light. And as Don Rickles would say, the air conditioning consists of a dude in the back going, Hey, buddy! <laughs> and the... In, but you go to CB, uh, so there'll be a mechanical camera, right? So you're, you're on a set, a TV set with, in a newsroom in Denver, whatever, and a mechanical camera like Brazil, like fucking Terry Gilliam, like, like stop it. And, and there's nobody there on the floor because it would require paying each person that man uh, that that person to camera, right? But at CBS, zillion cameramen, a zillion assistants, a zillion people on the floor. There was like 50 people on the floor. I was excited to see that much TV money in one place on a Saturday fucking morning at seven o'clock. It was very exciting to me. Uh, are you saying that network TV is the future? Absolutely. <laughs> It will be beamed directly into your Google glasses. So when you awake, uh, as uh, the band said, you will remember everything. You will be dancing on a string. Uh, I don't have Google glasses. I have Poople glasses. And so mine light up with anything I, I wish. Uh, in any case, thank you very much, Brian and Greg and everyone for having me on this morning. It was, and you know what? I'm always ranking on TV because it's uncool. Be- uh, because it's uncool. Um, uh, Jack White on the show today and the band Wussy from Cincinnati. Yeah, that's fucking CBS this morning. Is this some sort of commercial for CBS? Absolutely. I don't think there's any more August institution than the Columbia Broadcasting System, the Tiffany Networks. When I was little, they used to show Leonard Bernstein on Sundays. Uh, and as Alan Sherman said, he would explain to you what that symphony just meant. Uh, thank you, Wesley Kevin, for all that. Thank you for all the gifts you've given me. If I've neglected to mention you, tough shit. And uh, <laughs> no, we've got lots of stuff here. Oh, yeah, no, it really is time to get moving. Uh, 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 someone sent me this. Uh, let's see here. Uh, someone tweeted it to me. Oh, first of all, let's get to this. Let's get to what's what. Uh, the show can't start really until we uh, get to this, which is. Uh, Porky Pig, this is the New York Post, uh, America's paper of record. <laughs> the editorials in the New York Post are like reading what Goebbels wrote during World War II and stuff. <laughs> the feminist and the Jew! The communist and the union worker! The intellectual! Why can't the police do what they need to do to bring all New Jersey must be annexed. <laughs> Everything from Levittown to Secaucus. 
It's really wild. But we read the post for fun. Uh, you know, it's like going to the playground where there's the caterpillar thing that you get on and you go, wah, 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 and you're like, caterpillars don't ride you. That's what reading the post is like. Is Cindy Adams in the post or the Daily News? Post. I like when she's like, only in New York, kids. It'll be like, snow fell yesterday. <laughs> Donald Trump had to wait half an hour to get in the Holland Tunnel. Oh, only in New York, kids. Oh. Really? I believe that Cindy Adams lives in a jar and that her brain is attached like in that episode with Mr. Spock uh, to a weird pulsating orange thing that controls her movements. And that her hair is actually Dear Abby and Ann Lander's hair. And that it's been reconstituted into a follicular folliculi. The New York Post today uh, states this. Porky Pig gets bounced off flight. And there's a picture of a woman on an airline here, and you can see that it's taken with a phone, and she's carrying what appears to be about a giant pig on her shoulder. And as you know, wild boars are a clear and present danger on the show. Natalie O'Neill, are you going to read the byline? Yeah, because I think you need to know who wrote this. Her pot-bellied pig will be welcome on this airline, hyphen. When pigs fly, exclamation point. Good fucking writing, you guys. I'm leaving that exclamation point. I'm leaving that one. I'm giving it extra booster points. Booster. Booster points. Uh, a woman. I love reporting. A woman. A, a Homo sapiens was seen. Really, a woman. A woman was booted from a U.S. Airways flight in Connecticut. Because her pet pig was pacing around and stinking up the cabin. Comma, passengers said Friday. Friday. In Connecticut. A stinky pig caused disruption on a U.S. Airways flight. Don't bury the headline. Other travelers... Passengers said Friday? Did you see the pig? Friday! <laughs> yes, I know what day it is. Pig! Other... Other... I don't know what day! Flying into Connecticut is one of the most depressing fucking things. What's that town in Connecticut? Hartford. I was in a bar in Hartford with Brad Sherwood and uh, Colin Mockery, who you may remember. Uh, wow. 
A lot of fucking disappointment at the outset of this story. Someone in the front row just went, oh. You know, when you meet Angie Harmon, you don't mention her famous work. You go, I like Rizzoli and Styles. Holland and Brad and I had done a corporate gig in Hartford. Or Providence. Or that's what I don't know. It was Hartford. And we were in the hotel bar. And the drunkest woman in the universe sat down there. And went, yeah, 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 yeah. And I went, you know what? We have to do a thing. Would you excuse us? And she fucked off. And Colin went, how did you do that? And I'm like, that's how you do it. Oh my God, we're in the middle of a thing. Goodbye. Like, I really want to hear you go, hey, yeah, 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 yeah. It's literally, that was where she was coming from. Other travelers thought the woman was schlepping, and that's what I love about New Yorkers. <laughs> when you read the Oklahoma white supremacists, <laughs> when you read the, the, the Tulsa no mixing of the races daily, <laughs> They do not use the word schlepping in the second <laughs> And this is a woman named Natalie O'Neill. Not, not noticeably schleppable. Others travelers thought the woman was schlepping. What is that? What, she, what is she schlepping something? A dark colored duffel bag over her shoulder. When she boarded the plane on Wednesday, they said, Wait a minute. Passengers said Friday. One paragraph ago. And then now, a paragraph later, when she boarded the plane on Wednesday, they said, So what, two days transpired? Before this porcine fucking abomination was reported to the news media and put on page three of the fucking post? But... It turned out to be a 70-pound potbelly pig. What is she slapping? Is that a duffel bag? Could you stop with the yelling? I'm sitting right next to you. I want to know what she has on her shoulder. I think it's a pig. It's not kosher. turned on to be a 70-pound blood-bellied pig, which became disruptive. <laughs> Before the play... All right, who wants to play a little three-card money here? Okay, this is how the game works. Which one is it out there? All right, all right, all right. There we go. Disruptive pig. By the way, I'm recording an album in San Francisco later in the year, and I've just decided on the title. <laughs> Disruptive pig. <laughs> I used to. Turns out it wasn't a duffel bag. We could smell it. <laughs> you know, I'm I'm gonna call bullshit right here. Pigs are often very clean uh, and meticulous on their own. Yes, I know. Uh, according to Simon Jackson, they lie in their own shit. Therefore, a pig's a filthy animal. <laughs> But I'm telling you that pigs are generally fastidious. How do you know this, Greg? I, you know, fuck you, I was born in a cane field. Um, 
We were surrounded every night by Kalua pigs who would anoint themselves with the kura and run around our fire. And then sometimes they'd anoint themselves with Kalua and then uh, half and half in ice and vodka and they'd make black Russians out of themselves. It was a pig on a leash, passenger John Skolnick, a professor at the University of Massachusetts Amherst, told ABC. Skolnick, who was seated next to the pig, was furious about the woman's four-legged travel buddy. She tethered it to the armrest next to me and started to deal with her stuff, but the pig was walking back and forth. He fumed. I think I'd better give that a better reading. I said it like he wasn't fuming. She tethered it to the arm, rest next to me, and started to deal with her stuff. <laughs> but the pig was walking back forth. <laughs> I'm a professor at Amherst University. <laughs> I'm going to tell you this Wednesday, but I want you to wait till Friday to <laughs> Crew members asked the woman and her porky pal to leave above after passengers complained he was, well, hogging too much space. As, as Betty Davis says in Olivadine, it gets better. I came as soon as I ran that red and filth. I ran every step of the way. Phil's here, baby. The woman had brought the curly-tailed pet aboard as an emotional support animal. Emo see? It took a turn for your fucking emotions, didn't it? All of a sudden, the cynical fucking Brooklyn veneer of I can fucking handle anything, fuck you, Mr. Hot Dog Stand, my girlfriend's dead laying in the sidewalk with a fucking grenade in her back, whatnot, irradiated canal, fucking being pushed off the you know, pavement at brunch by a stroller when I was trying to get a fucking pancake and whatnot. All of a sudden, she needed that fucking pig. That's why she's willing to schlep it onto a plane on her shoulder. I'm here for emotional support. You lost weight, you look terrific in this shot. I love that hell color. I'm so glad you don't hit it anymore. It wasn't you. Emotional support animals, including pigs, are allowed on flights under federal rules drafted in 2012. Evidently a federal rules meeting that we were not privy to. Monkeys, cats, and even miniature horses all qualify. I fly quite a lot. If we take up a collection tonight, I promise to buy a miniature horse. Take that horse on JetBlue on Monday. And when they're like, Sir, your pony is destroying the economy. Be like, this horse is here for emotional support. And when I look at it, the horse goes... Like 
fucking little flicker and whatnot. Fucking, who doesn't need a miniature pony for a fucking support system? I didn't even know you could do that. I heart you, New York Post. Whatever I said before about Goebbels writing your copy in the chat, take it back. You're all fucking hard. How do you put your sweater on? Fucking miniature horses on planes? Imagine your next flight to see your parents in Ohio. Yeah, the three people from Ohio are pissing themselves. My parents don't live in Ohio. A girl over here went, would it be to bring a miniature horse in for Christmas? Who's going to take care of it? Who's going to feed it? <laughs> Fuck it, it's just for Christmas. Let it run. Can't horses uh, attack and eat? No. When they live in nature, right? They... <laughs> Don't all animals eat, uh, you know, blood, flesh? What are horses? Hey. No, you have to groom a horse. You're right. You can't just let a horse fucking run wild. You know, pigs are self-sufficient because pigs are highly intelligent. Pigs will fuck with horses. I don't mean... In a graphic sense, I mean... They'll put a pig or a dog in a horse's stall because horses are like, Oh my God, what's happening? Horses are like... Uh, Petra Nemakova or whatever. They're like... They're very highly strung Eastern European supermodels. Horses are like, Oh my God, I'm so pretty. Oh my God, I... And then something will happen somewhere on Earth, and they're like, ah, and their eyes roll, and they fall over, and then they have to be shot. <laughs> their legs snap. They're really freaky. They're really high from you know, That's why horses will prance and shit. People can teach horses to prance, and horses are fucking willing to prance. Horses aren't embarrassed, by the way, when they have ribbons in their hair and are in the Olympics and they're going like this and shit. When you see an upscale British woman riding a fucking horse in the Olympics, the horse like, fuck you. <laughs> Too sexy for my bridle, too sexy for my bridle, watch me sidle. Too sexy for my, too sexy for my, yeah, fucking horses left. Pigs on the other hand are pragmatic, they're like, you suck. Horses are like mice, if mice weighed a million pounds on your muscle. Uh, it's up to transportation officials to decide which animals are too disruptive to travel on airplanes. Uh, no, it is not. It is up to us, the taxpayer. <laughs> Who the fuck are transportation officials? You mean the fat person sitting, not doing anything, looking at their phone, wearing rubber gloves as I walk by them? That transportation official? Or perhaps there's one in an office laying down edicts like, oh, you can't wear your shoes on a plane, even though that didn't work. Let me cloud. Hopes for humor. They're intelligent and tuned into their owners at the flight's destination. This is this is good writing by Natalie O'Neill. The flight's destination was not immediately clear on Friday. (laughs) Yes, Natalie, it was. And if you'd spent an extra 13 seconds on your phone, you could have looked up which fucking flight it was and where it was fucking going. Okay. All planes, destinations on U.S. Airways are known to U.S. Airways. That's some real fucking shit is what thought it is. If you want to run, oh, um, someone gave me this magnet as well. And this magnet says, if you go home with somebody and they don't have books, don't fuck them. John Walker. 
Very quickly, this. Uh, this was uh, tweeted to me today. I, God damn it, I didn't write who tweeted it to me, but there you are. Uh, I'll get back to them and find that out. So the ten passages of the highly colored prose are up for the prize every author dreads. The annual literary review Bad Sex in Fiction Award. Vote for the one that lights your fire. This is from The Guardian from Wednesday. Um, uh, lots of famous authors put sex scenes in their books. And uh, I don't believe in sex scenes because uh, they're funny. And uh, I think these ones I think you'll find are amazingly good. This is The Legacy of Elizabeth Pringle by a Scottish author named Kirsty Wark. Um, I won't read the whole clip from each of them because some of them are laborious. But he, he said my name over and over as he lifted me up. My legs curled around him and, and laid me down beneath him on a high bed. I'd never imagined what I was capable of wanton behavior, but it was as if a dam within me had burst. <laughs> That sounds unhygienic. <laughs> if I'm with you and you're whipped into a fucking passion and a dam burst inside you, I'm gonna call fucking authorities. <laughs> dam authorities. <laughs> we could drown. <laughs> we made love that day and night like two people starved. You mean weekly and wishing you had food the whole time? Oh my god, I'm so hungry I can barely concentrate on what I'm doing here. I could murder a fucking Reuben. Slowly suffused with more and more pleasure, exploring and devouring each, every inch of each other so as not to miss one single possibility of passion. Desert God by Wilbur Smith. Her breasts, which thrust their way through it like living creatures. <laughs> so up until now, the women you've been with were dead. And their breasts thrust through the curtain like dead creatures. The morbidity in the purple tips... informed me immediately that her demise had been some time before. Shall I mention then, dear reader? They were perfect rounds, white as mare's milk and tipped with ruby nipples that puckered as my gaze passed over them. You mean like this? Stop your nipples from puckering? Stop looking at me! What can I do? They're living creatures! Her body was hairless. Gross. 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 Don't make me call a fucking lawyer. This is some bullshit. This is University of Virginia shit now. No, fuck you. Nobody's body's hairless, okay? Her pudenda were also entirely devoid of hair. I can't even read the next sentence. Will you turn the audience mic on?
though. Will someone read this for me? The tips of her inner lips protruded shyly from their vertical cleft. restrained their bodies before it was now gone. If the earth spun, it faltered. If the wind blew, it waited. This is pretty good. Maybe I should read this alone in the dressing room for a while. Here's the good part. He kissed the slight rose-colored trench that remained from her nigger elastic running around her belly like the equator line circling the world. lost themselves in the circumnavigation of each other. <laughs> what are you, Admiral Peary? What are you, Magellan? Jesus Christ, stop circumnavigating. Hey, Columbus, discover me. Land, won't you? Hey, Balboa, I'm over here. I'm wet. I'm huge. I'm the Pacific. <laughs> stop circumnavigating, all right? Fucking put a flotilla down, okay? Hey, Viking, I'm Vineland. Let's go. Jesus Christ. This is the best part. You already said that was the best part. This part's better. There came from nearby shrill shrieks that ended in a deeper howl. Qu'est-ce que say? Dorigo looked up. First of all, if one of your characters is named Dorigo... There should be a box at the front of the book that says, trying too hard, and you tick it before you read it. <laughs> Dorigo looked up. <laughs> Remember, he had just pulled down her panties and there was the red band that was like the equator and whatnot. 
A large dog stood at the top of the dune. Above blood-jagged drool, its slobbery mouth clutched a twitching fairy penguin. Am I to understand we're having sex in the Antipodes? Perhaps Argentina or the Malvinas or something? And a fairy penguin got at by a dog while they were having sex in the dunes? That is fucking baroque. By the way, in case you want to read that book, it's called The Narrow Road to the Deep North by Richard Flanagan. Uh, no. I'm going to let you read one more. Because it's very good. It is really good. And then we're going to move on uh, to all the serious bits. Oh, I'm looking at the wrong one. It's this one right here. What's your name, by the way? Andrea. That is correct. <laughs> <laughs> Running her tongue over her lips, she nodded. She was as hot as boiling water in a distillation flask. <laughs> distillation flask? Thank you. She nodded her head like, no. <laughs> First of all, if you have to use the word distillation flask while describing sex, you've thought about it too much. <laughs> How about, she was like a wasp landing on a stamen laden with pollen, and I was like a pollen laden stamen. <laughs> If, if a distillation flask appears while you're making love, run away from that area. You're in a movie with Benedict Cumberbatch. Oh! We have no time to do the show now. It's been an amazing week in America, and uh, perhaps one of the more tragic weeks. Uh, uh, let's just put it this way: the attorney, the district attorney, Mr. McCulloch of uh, uh, of um, Ferguson, Missouri, and that county thereof, uh, determined to make this the worst Thanksgiving a lot of us will ever remember. Um, here's the best part: I have never been prouder of the United States than I have in the last week because of the amount of protest and the amount of unbelievable uh, uh, the public display. Uh, of disapproval with what has happened and the absolute acknowledgement of where the state of play is in this country as uh, uh, in purview to uh, Ferguson and the reality of what's going on with the legality of the police in this country, uh, brutality and how the underclass is treated and how black people are treated by the police in this country in a very significant and profound way and I hope and uh, we wish uh, fervently and I, I believe uh, that this hopefully will be the turning point. You've seen so many turning points come and go. Uh, the theater shooting in um, Denver, the um, Sandy Hook uh, 
shootings, everything, and, and things still seem to remain the same because the white dominant paradigm is controlled by 80 white men who rape their maids and destroy us uh, with their avarice and greed at every movement and turn and control every movement. But you've seen that in this last week, uh, civil disobedience, one, is a reality, two, is wildly effective, and three, is still getting coverage, even at this late date, on this holiday weekend, where, as you know, the biggest story of the week is Black Friday and shopping and shit like that, and uh, Ray Rice and the NFL and all the other things that don't really have anything to do with what's going on in the United States this week. Here's something Steve Marmel, the comic, wrote today on Twitter, and uh, I thought it was a very salient point. Uh, Steve Marmel wrote, who's at at Marmel, M-A-R-M-E-L, wrote, it's not white guilt, it's empathy, try it. Everything that's happened this week has been revolting most. There's no question about that. This country's broken in a thousand different ways. But as usual, I have a message of hope to impart at the end of all of this because I believe uh, that this is a galvanizing moment and that uh, when something this flagrant happens, it can't help uh, but move things forward in a thousand different ways. But before we get into that ever so briefly, I want you to know that the United States is not an island and that we don't exist uh, separate from the rest of the world and that many people all over the world are involved in their own individual fight for fucking freedom and rights and that this week Mexico, Thailand, Kenya and, um, uh, uh, and, and Mexico I've written here that's fantastic it, it's three countries as made into four uh, there's countries all over the world uh, Hong Kong is the fourth one uh, where people have protested and have been protesting uh, against the government and about things that are violently wrong in their countries ever so briefly. In Mexico, this is the Chicago Tribune. Americans ignore the mass murder of students that's roiling Mexico. The violent disappearance of 43 students from rural, um, uh, a rural teacher's college in Guerrero State has caused a political earthquake, the likes of which Mexico has not seen in generations, perhaps even since the revolution of 1910. People have been protesting daily in Mexico. Uh, 43... Uh, students uh, from a rural teacher's college were taken out at the behest of gangsters and the police and assassinated. And it shocked their country to the very core. And I think we can understand what they're feeling when they're feeling that the government is not in touch with them, when they're feeling that uh, the police and the uh, uh, armed suppressive uh, security forces are not on the side of the people. Um, I think we can absolutely empathize with our sister republic to the south the sister republic that has provided us with so much, for instance, the names of all the western states and the population of 25% of the fucking country and, uh, and the unbelievable rich cultural heritage that makes America what it is, uh, except of course in New York where you've always had shitty Mexican food, but the point is this. Uh, in Thailand, in a stunning turn of events today, this is from this week, uh, this is from PBS, uh, no, riot police yielded to peaceful protesters. They were ordered to harass and block. The police removed barricades and their helmets as a sign of solidarity. The protesters explained their goal is to destroy the political machine of former Prime Minister Taksin Shinawatra, who's accused of widespread corruption and abuse of power. Taksin's sister, Prime Minister Yingluk Shinawatra, is currently in power and is seen as a puppet of her brother. This, uh, the move by police has surprised many and marks a turning point in the protests and potential shift in power. As you know, in every revolution, at one point the army throws down their guns and joins the revolutionaries because they realize that the king, uh, metaphorically, symbolically, however you wish to see it, um, the corporations, the president, whomever, um, is in the wrong. And uh, it's beautiful to see it happen in Thailand, which has been a military dictatorship and undergoing mad flux for the last several years. China, 
Calm returns, and this is from the Wall Street Journal, and this is why I wanted to read you this one, because the Wall Street Journal is slightly to the right of the New York Post, as you know. It's like, what if Wall Street Post, uh, what if the Wall Street Post, if there was a Wall Street Post, it would be awesome, because the Wall Street Journal on the cover would have fucking Porky Pig ejected from plane, financial reasons cited, Deutsche Bank recoils. Uh, the Wall Street Journal, uh, I, like, I like to get all viewpoints, unlike some members of the Supreme Court, particularly Justice Antonin Scalia. I am able to read the right-wing press and understand what it is and still digest it and not have a fucking heart attack over it and get a lot of points of view. I'll read the fascist press and I'll read all the press because that's what one ought to do. Uh, is it to get all viewpoints? No. Everyone's driving a fucking agenda. All viewpoints, are you out of your fucking mind? You have to make up your own fucking mind as to what viewpoint you're going to take. Uh, but gathering information is the only way to do it. Uh, and what about erroneous information that's fallacious and clearly propaganda? That has to be read too. Because you have to understand what people are conflating and what people are uh, imagining and what people are putting forward as news and information uh, in this society. And understand that a lot of people digest whatever they get immediately. And that even further, more people digest nothing because they don't want to be involved in anything. Mm. Carry on. Uh, from the Wall Street Journal. And this is the headline. Calm returns to cleared Hong Kong protest site. You mean... When the protesters were there, it wasn't calm because they were protesting the unbelievable iniquity of the fact that the Hong Kong government and the Beijing government insist upon a slate of candidates that no one has democratically chosen and that these people had the temerity to suggest that maybe voting might be a sacred thing that one can do uh, for candidates that you even have the charade of pretending that you've chosen or that some sort of democracy is in place at all. Uh, however, uh, as you know, the news is only interested in two things, the underclass rioting and the word fire. Uh, police scuffled with hundreds of protesters who gathered in the area Friday night and early Saturday morning. Uh, Friday marked two months since the police used tear gas against protesters who demanded free elections for Hong Kong's top official, blah, blah, blah. Crowds packed the shopping center, police charged into the crowd, DVD. Uh, the Secretary General of the Hong Kong Federation, Alex Chow, He's a, one of the uh, student protesters. Urged people to go to Admiralty on Sunday. He told people to bring supplies such as umbrellas, goggles, and masks. Facing an, intransi uh, an intransigent Hong Kong government, the protest movement has been losing momentum. That's according to the Wall Street Journal. You may remember when Occupy was happening in New York, and you had your previous uh, mayor here, Mayor Bloomberg, who, as Barbara Walters said, was the best Maya in the history of New York. <laughs> and she should know, because she was wealthy. Uh, when the Occupy movement was in full swing, uh, that's when the police swept in and fucking knocked everything down and vandalized their sites. And that the media was given to understand that these were trust fund students on a lark, or homeless people who were on a bender, as opposed to the true fact, which was that everyone finally got hit to the fact uh, in the last five years that the 1% is taking everything and that we must join together and support one another because that's the only way we're, our voice will be heard. Uh, ergo Ferguson, ergo Hong Kong, ergo Thailand, ergo Mexico, ergo Kenya and whatnot. Um, in Kenya, protesters are demanding Kenya's military deploy security forces in hotspots known for violence. You may remember there was a giant massacre at the Westgate Mall last year. Um, by the uh, Al-Shabaab, which killed 67 shoppers. 
Um, people in Kenya are on the streets protesting uh, as we speak. Here, will you play that uh, Junior Mervin jam? It's always good in a revolution to have some music because music makes it better. And uh, it makes it funner. There you are. This is uh, the Junior Mervin version. Here, you can turn it down a little bit. This song Salt Police and Thieves in the streets, uh, scaring the nation with their, their guns and ammunition. You might remember the Clash's version, which went, they didn't quite do it with the finesse that Junior Mervin did. In any case, people all over the world have been protesting this week because of the inequity of what's going on and the fact that the government's unresponsive to everything. Here's a couple of things that came to mind when I was watching what was happening this week in Ferguson and the uh, grand jury non-indictment uh, that went down. First of all, obviously, uh, the district attorney, Mr. McCulloch, there was a distinct sound during his speech of axes being ground. It's impossible uh, in his mind uh, for a policeman to be guilty of any crime. And uh, he dumped a great deal of information upon that grand jury. Most grand juries convene and uh, come away with a verdict, sometimes in several hours. This was, of course, three months, of, uh, or 60 days, was it, of grand jury nonsense. He also released the information in the middle of the night, which was conducive to an inflammation, which was conducive to what he wanted to demonstrate, which was that the underclasses are unstable and violent. Um, the fact that uh, um, Officer Wilson uh, was allowed to be uh, interrogated and not cross-examined during the uh, grand jury investigation is, is scandalous. And you heard what he said, because I'm sure we all watched George Stephanopoulos' interview of him on ABC News. ABC News has let it be known um, unequivocally that the police are great, according to the police. <laughs> and that the government is in control, according to the government. Um, it was the least conclusive interview in the history of interviews. When you interview someone who's murdered someone else, and they say that I felt like a five-year-old, and they were like Hulk Hogan, and that they were a demon and things like that, we're talking about a well-rehearsed, almost completely insipid, infantile version of events that's manufactured. We all know it, and therefore I'm going to say it. As I said to my wife today, uh, Joan Rivers said something very silly, which was, I say what people think. So I'm going to say what people think this week. This uh, grand jury uh, non-indictment was a complete manufactured non-indictment uh, run by the legal machine of the state of Missouri so that they would not have to embarrass uh, a law enforcement officer in their employ. The fact that the news media was so ready and willing to pick up this story, and I don't know where you watched, but every graphic that I saw included the teenager Michael Brown with Darren Wilson in the same graphic. So now, the indignity of the person murdered by always being attached to the murderer is there. Who ordered this? Who ordered that the white policeman be always shown with the black teenager? I'm not understanding uh, uh, well, I do understand in a very graphic and uh, propaganda Goebbels type way that when they show the murderer over and over again and that the murderer is exonerated by their interview on TV and that the murderer is exonerated by the legal system 
and that the murderer is supported by the fact that he is a law enforcement officer and sworn oath and whatnot, and that we are supposed to blindly accept this um, verdict, and that the president came on TV right after and said, hey, everybody, this is what happened. Shut up and don't riot. And that the unbelievable patronizing uh, of us, that the thing that we would not be adult enough to sift through the facts and understand the reality of the situation, the fact that we understand almost immediately that this has happened a million times in the last few years and will happen a million more. That the use of what they call, uh, what, do they, what do they say in legalese? Uh, not excessive force, uh, lethal. Uh, meaning the police get to murder people who they're afraid of. Am I against the police? No. Are there good police? That's a, an open-ended question that I'm not prepared to make a value judgment on. I think it's too simplistic to say there's good cops and there's bad cops. I think that everyone is a human and that we all react according to our wants and blah, blah, blah. However, the fact that this has happened time and time again and that there are dozens of black people, including in the last few weeks, who are innocent of any crime whatsoever and have been shot by reactionary police, that the system, you might say, is irrevocably broken and needs to be uh, fixed immediately. And that President Obama was remiss in several regards. One, he's a Harvard Law professor. Two, he's the chief executive of the United States. And three, he's a black man with a white mom and therefore would know everything about what race is going on and the reality of what's going on with the shooting of black people in this country by police forces. And that his response was measured uh, to a point where it was no longer human and therefore no longer hum uh, useful to us and therefore did not communicate to us what needed to be communicated this week, which was some shit went down that was out of fucking hand and that we were going to deal with it. Um, when it happened in August, he didn't go and I complained about it then. When it happened uh, this week, Obama didn't go. And it's a great disappointment. I understand that he's a bought and sold corporate Harvard fucking lawyer that the machine put up there so that, uh, that we would all go with the idea that he's some sort of liberal. I understand all that. Um, but there's some kind of lip service that could be paid to the humanity in this country. And that Lyndon Johnson, who was nobody's shrinking fucking violet, and who said things like, I've got his pecker in my pocket. <laughs> might have had uh, the uh, generosity of heart and the catholicity of spirit to go and visit Missouri this week and to stand in that fucking street and go, I don't want violence. What happened here was wrong. And I don't mean what happened here was wrong, just the shooting. I mean, what happened, everything was wrong. Not just the shooting, but the legality of the unbelievable circus court that happened afterward uh, and like that. Uh, I think that Poetry often helps in times like this. Uh, or here's another thing I want to say. The media was absolutely shameful uh, in their inconceivable, cowering, bullshit, sniveling, fucking government, toe-the-line, uh, police state nonsense that they backed up every goddamn step of the way. They had to understand that there's been protests every day and in cities all over this country, including today, in Washington, D.C., in Los Angeles, all over the week. Um, I was watching in, um, uh, on um, Tuesday... And my wife and I were watching in Los Angeles, and we were watching CNN, um, which has the has a lot of reporters that I don't have a lot of respect for. Uh, Mr. Lemon, uh, 
Anyway, Anderson Cooper was uh, conducting a, a, an interview, and they were showing the protesters on the freeway in Los Angeles. By the way, if you wish to commit civil disobedience in the city of Los Angeles, blocking the freeway is the most effective way you can. It's like in New York, if you block like the bagel flow or whatever, you know what I mean? It, it, you, you block the freeway in LA, you fuck up everyone's life. And so uh, they were blocking the freeway, and uh, w- one of the people he was interviewing, well, the protesters, and Anderson Cooper, the son of Gloria Vanderbilt, went, <laughs> yeah, the protesters. What about the people who just want to live normal lives? Here's my news to the people who want to live normal lives. You don't get to. That shit's over. What's happening is what's happening. Everyone wants to cocoon and everyone wants to run away and pretend that their life is normal. Guess what? Black people getting shot by police is part of your normal fucking life. Okay? That's what that's about, alright? Uh, people going to schoolyards, people going to grocery store parking lots, people going wherever you can think and opening fire with weapons is part of your normal life. We have a lot to deal with in our normal lives. We live in a complex fucking world. I am so sick of hearing people go, well, I just want to live my life, and other people go, fuck that shit. If white men carrying giant automatic weapons on their backs in Starbucks and fucking toy stores and Chipotle's and shit is normal, then how... Uh, and they're, notice they're never shot down by the police. When there was a riot, when... Uh, <laughs> at Penn State, when Joe Paterno was chucked out, there was a riot and police cars were burnt. Uh, when Kentucky won the national championship in 2012, police cars were turned over and burnt. No one was shot during any of those riots. Uh, normal means shooting the underclass because they misfucking behave and we're frightened of them. And Officer Wilson's testimony doubled down on that fucking bullshit. It's time we as Americans understood several fucking things. There's no such thing as white guilt, it's white empathy. Secondly, um, slavery existed and the suppression of the races is a reality. Whether you're a woman, whether you're a Jew, whether whatever you are, you have felt suppression and oppression in your fucking life. And therefore, you should feel empathy toward the people who are being oppressed. And this is where we need to come from as a society. We need to feel each other and understand that when a black teenager shot, even if he was a great big black teenager who was mean and punched you, that shooting everyone is not the answer to fucking everything. Um, they asked Officer Wilson... Why don't you have a taser in your police car? And he said, it's too bulky. Well, (laughs) inconvenience versus Michael Brown being alive would change the destiny of this country. Hello. And indeed. So that's what we're talking about. Uh, These trivialities. They don't come from nowhere. And when you see protesters on TV and they're disrupting the world and people are like, I just want to get to work and blah, 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 and I'm inconvenienced and shit like that. Free speech is built on this. You have to remember that, uh, as I said on the show before, people died so you could have a five-day work week. People died so that women could vote. Women petitioned for a hundred and... 
Over 200 years, women petitioned every year to have the vote, and it was not given to them till the 20th century, till 1920. And plenty of women died in that fucking struggle. And that's what you need to know about America. Um, it, it, no one gets anything because the government doesn't give anything. And the powers that be don't willingly relinquish any power. It has to be demanded and it has to be fought for. And in this instance, with what's going on with the injustice in Ferguson, with what's going on with the injustice with women's reproductive rights in this country, with what's going on with immigration in this country, with what's going on with a thousand different issues, has to be fucking fought for every goddamn day in the fucking streets. And how does that... Well, how do I deal with it, Greg? Well, um... Fight it! Fucking A. <laughs> when you see protests on TV... When you see people protesting on TV, they're not disruptive. They're you. They're me. They're everybody. Understand that uh, 275 years ago, guys with cocked hats dressed like Indians threw fucking tea into a harbor, and they were considered terrorists and shit like that. Now they're heroes because they were white guys who dressed like Indians. I hate to bore everyone to death, but I'm afraid that's all I can do. The First Amendment of the Constitution reads, Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof or abridging the freedom of speech or of the press or of the right of the people peaceably to assemble and to petition the government for a redress of grievances. And Ted Beecham and Sean Hannity and Rupert Murdoch can believe in this, then we can believe in this. And that means, yes, you have the right to fucking assemble. Yes, you don't have to pull a permit. Yes, you have the right to not have the cops tase you. Was anything more evocative than the giant photograph of all the police in riot gear under the season's greeting sign? That really said everything about fucking everything. In Missouri, some hundred and something years ago, the Dred Scott decision took place. Dred Scott was a slave who fought for his own freedom, and he sued the government. He'd been in many different states, but the only state he was finally allowed to sue in was Missouri. His master had brought him to several different states. And uh, Chief Justice Taney at the time ruled against him and said, um, I believe it's right here in this book here, this is lies my teacher told me by James W. Ryan. Um, in this book, let's see here, the Dred Scott decision in 1857 declared, a Negro had no rights a white man was bound to respect. Now, it's been some time since then, but you get the general gist of what's going on. Um, in a state where the Dred Scott decision was decided, for this to happen in 2014 reflects very poorly on our progress as a country, and that we should be aiming a little higher uh, as for our aspirations, and that everyone receives equal treatment under the law and what not. Thurgood Marshall was an irrevocable angel that was sent down from heaven to adjudicate on our Supreme Court. There have been many justices on the Supreme Court. However, my personal favorite is Thurgood Marshall, because I believe more than any justice, and no, he was not chief justice, but he was the first black person. Um, his heart was in the right place. 
a small biography, and then a couple of quotes, and then we'll move swiftly along. Thurgood Marshall, a graduate of Lincoln University and Howard University Law School, he distinguished himself as a lawyer for the NAACP. He was the chief of the NAACP Legal Defense and Educational Fund. Marshall proved his worth as an advocate. By the way, this book is called Great Speeches by African Americans. It's on the Dover Press. Uh, let's see here. Winning 29 of the 32 cases he argued before the U.S. Supreme Court, Marshall was appointed to the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Second Circuit in 61 and named U.S. Solicitor General in 65, the Supreme Court in 67. The following speech was delivered by Marshall at the annual seminar, DDD. And this is what he says. This was about the Constitution, which he considered a living document. Blacks joined America's military to fight its wars and invested untoward untold hours working in its factories and on its farms, contributing to the development of this country's magnificent wealth and waiting to share its prosperity. My very good friend Warren Thomas was a black comedian, and my other very good friend David Feldman, who has a marvelous podcast called The David Feldman Podcast, once said to him, Warren, you're black, how come you don't hate America? And he said, David, we built this country. Yes! Yes! <laughs> the men who gathered in Philadelphia in 1787, we're talking about the Constitution, uh, the one I just read the First Amendment from, uh, would not have envisioned these changes. They could not have imagined or would they have accepted the document they were drafting would one day be construed by a Supreme Court to have been appointed a woman, that was Senator Day O'Connor, and the descendant of an African slave, that's a good marshal. We, the people, are no longer enslaved, but the credit does not belong to the framers. In other words, let's get off the guys with wigs and John Adams and Thomas Jefferson and all the slaveholders and all of them. What they did was monumental, but what they did was exclusive. Now we live in an era where we must be inclusive of everyone, and that means every race, creed, gender. Uh, we must open our hearts and open our minds and open the Supreme Court and force the Supreme Court and the legal system to insist that transgender people, gay people, white people, black people, any race you can think of, men, women, in between, must be accorded the same rights under the goddamn law. And that means that people who are shot by the police illegally need to have some legal recourse and that we don't keep repeating the same horrible nightmare over and over again where the underclass is stuffed below and that the 1% seem to get everything they want. And how can we do this, Greg? By understanding that the country changes whether we want it to or not, and that this was a pivotal moment. In 20 years' time, this podcast will seem like an LP record. <laughs> in red vinyl, going... <laughs> skipping along. In 20 years' time, hopefully... There will be another person sitting up here, a Filipino lesbian person, <laughs> telling you what's what, and that the dominant paradigm won't be white guys anymore. Um, because white guys aren't getting it done, you may have noticed. And when I say white guys, I include Obama uh, in, in a terrible and, in, in a terrible and uh, impugning way, because um, there's a little too much corporate dancing for the man for my fucking taste. Uh, are, are you saying to these white person now I'm not being that fucking racist and I'm not being that abject? 
you know exactly what I'm saying. Uh, we must be careful when focusing on the event. Yeah. All right, we're move, moving on from that. Uh, uh, all the things I was talking about before, uh, the different white riots that have happened over time, are given a massive amount of leeway. Oh, I wanted to read you this ever so briefly, uh, just because. Um, let's see here. Um, Justiceformikebrown.com, which is justice with a four, mikebrown.com, and www.handsupunited.org are awesome places to start if you want to look at what's going on with the current protests against what's happening uh, in the Mike Brown decision and Ferguson and things like that. This is a poem by Langston Hughes. Langston Hughes was an irrevocable, irreplaceable uh, voice in the light of American um, literature and uh, race relations. He was a black man. Uh, and here's the poem, and it's called like this. Democracy will not come today, this year, nor ever. Through compromise and fear, I have as much right as the other fellow has to stand on my own two feet and own the land. I tire so of hearing people say, let things take their course. Tomorrow is another day. I do not need my freedom when I'm dead. I cannot live on tomorrow's bread. Freedom is a strong need planted in a great need. I live here too. I want freedom just as you. Uh, and that's what Langston Hughes had to say. It's almost impossible when you watch television and read the interwebs uh, to understand the obfuscation and the agenda pushing that's going on with the news media. Not, of course, the Columbia Broadcasting System, which is almost unbelievably fair. Having had me on this morning for four and a half minutes and allowed me to plug this show tonight, which they had they known the content of the show, and they did. Uh, Fire Dog Lake. Jennifer gave me this. Jennifer gave me a good deal of this. Police fired tear gas at coffee shop in St. Louis that was supposed to be a safe space. Uh, there were people hiding in a coffee shop that were journalists and uh, UN observers, and the police fired on them in Ferguson. Know that this week. Know that there have been much more peaceful protesters than they have uh, violent protesters. Also know that when you see white people say, well, these violent protesters <laughs> When are white people allowed to be violent? Is there a time when we're not allowed to be violent? Because we are allowed to be violent all the fucking time. Whenever we want to turn shit over, whenever we want to shoot our women, whenever we want to do whatever we fucking want, we're allowed to. When the underclass does, and the underclass is largely black people. And let's go back even further. When you go to the Civil War, a lot of textbooks will say the Civil War was fought for various reasons. The Civil War was fought because there was slavery in the South. The framers of the Constitution, who owned slaves, made a compromise with the Southern states so that they could get a union and so that they could get federalism. After that, we're talking about the Reconstruction. The Reconstruction was a, a lot of white people being angry at black people when there were finally black Congress people and things like that. Um, at every turn in this country, white people have defied black people to move forward. Um, during the last giant recession of 2008, the people that got hit the hardest were black people. 
Um, they'll tell you that John Brown was crazy for leading a slave revolt. John Brown was not crazy. He was known by Harriet Tubman, and he was known by Frederick Douglass, and they did not consider him crazy. Anyone is crazy that thinks everyone's equal in this country, and that's what the problem with the government of this country has been for 250 fucking years. And that's what the problem is right goddamn now. We know that it's not true. We know that we're all equal, and we know that we should all have a voice. And therefore, we need to gather together in mass, as people have been this week, uh, to show that we have the power and that we have the knowledge and that we have the wherewithal uh, to withstand the slings and arrows and withstand the unbelievable slamming down that the fascist state uh, uh, lays upon us. I planned a giant... I have dozens of pages of fucking <laughs> stuff here. And, um, and I've been reading about it all week. And it's been upsetting beyond all repair. But I really wanted to say this in the end. There's nothing that inspires me more than the fact that the love between people is irrevocable. And that when people get together, they're not torn by gender and race. They're not pushed apart by differences. And they, in fact, find the differences exciting, invigorating, intellectually stimulating and necessary. And that we, as a group, can move forward together, hand in hand and arm in arm. Men, women, and every race, gender, style, creed, religion, and whatnot. Without the help of the government, the government's not helping. Without the help of the corporations, the, the corporations are not helping. Without the help of the uh, ruling class, there will be what we want to be. There will be abortion for everyone. There will be racial equality. There will be uh, all of these things. How? Because we will demand it and we will get it. Uh, it seems hopeless now, Greg. Yeah. During the Civil War, slavery seemed hopeless. Uh, during World War II, integration of the armed forces seemed hopeless. During World War I, the idea that women would vote seemed hopeless. All of these things transpired. And all of these things that we have in our hearts will transpire. Because time marches on irrevocably. And people's mindset changes. And that we as a giant group will make all of these things happen. I hope I haven't sound, well, I always sound pontifical and up my own ass. <laughs> I'll say that. Um, this is an important week in American history. This is an important week as the week that fucking shots were fired in Fort Sumter. You know what I mean? Uh, and our duty lies in whatever you can do. I'm not asking that everyone man a barricade, and I'm not asking that everyone change their life immediately. I'm only saying that if you're in the sound of my voice, give thought to empathy and the idea that other people might be feeling what you're feeling. Um, but what about, um, you know, Tendigenet and culture on them? <laughs> they exist. You've got to be zen about some fucking things and go... <laughs> the buzzing of the wasp is annoying, and yet the wasp does not dominate me at the end of the day.
people are in power who we give power. And uh, it's a long, bloody fucking road. And I don't think I'll live to see the end of it. But I'm excited and delighted that in my lifetime, um, there's been Malcolm X and Shirley Chisholm, Martin Luther King and Gloria Stone, Bella Ab-fucking-Zig, and Elizabeth Warren, Wendy Davis, and fucking Hillary Clinton. I am excited that the idea that there can be change, that there will be change, that we will all move together uh, uh, forward, and that men can change. That's the most exciting idea of all to me. Because we are in There's another show coming in here in six minutes. <laughs> I told David, our sound person tonight, that I would end at 1.45. And he was like, well, another show is going to be In any case, I, I, I can't help but uh, thank you again for your kind attention here tonight. If there's anything you do with your life, um, the most important thing is to take care of yourself. And I don't mean that in a selfish Hollywood, uh, you know, self-possessed, self-reflexive, navel-gazing way. I mean that in so much as you must take care of yourself in so much as if you can't take care of yourself, you can't take care of others. And then when you take care of others, how do you do that? All politics are local. How local? I mean the person fucking next to you local. Um, it's not important that you solve all the issues of the country today. It's not important that you solve all the issues of the world today. You can't do that. But you can make the smallest movement toward what you can do which is writing a letter, which is joining a thing online, which is educating yourself against the coming conflict. Because there is a coming conflict. And in the end of this coming conflict will be rainbows and waterfalls, <laughs> butterscotch fucking pools that we may all dip in, and uh, enormous violent drinks full of sweetened fucking ambrosia that we all, yes. That we, really, it got that crazy? Yes. It's not too wrong to dream that way. It is, in fact, I think, imperative that we all dream bigger than, uh, than we can imagine. The media and uh, your friends and your cynical buddy and whatnot, they'll all have you believe one thing, but believe another thing. 200 years ago, there was slavery in this country. Now there's not slavery in this country. There is, but not in the way we knew it before. The slavery that we know now will not exist in 50 more years. The situation that we're in now will change because time moves everything forward. And that's the only message I have for you tonight. Um, I couldn't be happier that everyone is here and that everyone pays so much attention to me and that you've given respect to my opinion and that uh, in some small way we might have shared uh, this moment together and that we might know that Ferguson is not uh, a line of demarcation. Ferguson is a signpost uh, in a, a comprehensive freeway that we're all going to be taking very soon uh, toward an exciting and expansive future where everyone is acknowledged. You have been the smartest crowd in the world. I have.